thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Your family, your community, your country, your responsibility. Be the best citizen you can be. Click on the Leaders A banner on this website to find out about your rights and responsibility. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. 28 minutes to 10 o'clock. Good morning to you, Chris. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm really good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I thought I'd spot you uh, uh, amongst the London Marathon crowd, you know, that maybe you'll be running to the finish line at some point. Oh, I was the one sitting in the cafe. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny. So, Chris, it's been a while since I did any running. I have to admit, um, I used to, to do quite a bit of running, and uh, I did a few half marathons. But how these people do the the full marathon and the time it used to take me to do half a marathon, <laughs> I just don't know. It's just amazing. It's amazing indeed. Okay, so what's this about firmly clenching the right hand? I've been tr- I've been doing that since I started the show, and I'm hoping that my memory <laughs> is going to improve. <laughs> There's a paper which is out this week and it's in the journal plus one and it might provide some people with a way to boost their memory a little bit it actually builds on some research that was done in the early 90s almost 20 years ago by a psychologist called Endel Tolving who is now emeritus professor of psychology at Toronto University and what he and his colleagues had observed when they were experimenting in the early 90s is that if you put someone in a brain scanner and you ask them to try to remember some things you tend to see that the left hand side front part of their brain is relatively more active than the corresponding right side but then when you reverse the process and say could you now remember these things that you put into your memory earlier then this time the front right part of the brain is correspondingly a bit more active than the than the left side So it could be that if we were to boost the activity in those brain regions artificially when we're trying to store some memories to start with and then recall the memories later, that perhaps memory will be improved or at least that was the hypothesis of Ruth Proper, who's a researcher at Montclair University in New Jersey in America. So what she and her team did was to recruit 51 people and said to them, "Okay." you're going to hold this pink ball in your hand and give it a squeeze for 45 seconds, have a rest, have another squeeze for 45 seconds, and then we're going to give you a whole load of words on a computer screen, five seconds per word. You've got to remember as many of them as you possibly can, and then we're going to test you again. And what they did was to divide these volunteers up into various groups so that they could test every possible uh, combination of either squeeze with the right hand, try and remember the words, squeeze with the left hand, try and recall the words. And the reason they're doing this is that when you squeeze something with one of your hands, it activates the front part 
of the opposite side of your brain. So your right hand will activate your left brain and vice versa. When they did this, they found that people who squeezed the ball with their right hand for 90 seconds before trying to remember the words uh, or put them into their head in the first place and then squeezed the ball with their left hand before they tried to recall the words did the best of all. They remembered about 10 of the words on this list of 36 words. The people who did worse were the people who actually squeezed with the left hand first and then the right hand, so reversing the process. And the controls, people who didn't squeeze any balls when they were doing the study, they did just slightly worse than the people who were doing the ball squeezing. So it does appear to work. By boosting the activity in this part of the brain, it seems to facilitate memory formation and memory recall if you do it the right way around and you're right-handed. They didn't test any left-handers in this study. Um, that's mm. maybe work to do on a, another day. But it, it does appear to be consistent with the original research that was done. They also say, isn't it interesting, that the, um, the, these subjects were remembering words. It might even work better with pictures or more visual imagery. Very interesting. Is, 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 it, is there ever a time when it's perhaps too late for this experiment uh, to, to have an impact on a person's brain or, or ability to memorise things? It shouldn't do because mm -hmm. the point is that when you make the movement with your hand, you are going to activate and therefore facilitate the corresponding opposite side front part of your brain. And if you do it with your right hand when you're trying to lay down new memories, then it's going to activate that left side front part of your brain where memory initiates or memories are initially um, constructed. And therefore, you should facilitate the de deposition of that memory into a, into a longer-term store, and then you do the corresponding thing to get the memory back again. And one does wonder whether these executive toys and, and squeezy balls that people have on their, their desks to ease stress may be part of the reason why people play with them is because they do, without realising it, boost their memories and their recall that way, helps them concentrate. All right, our lines are open for you. Give us a call on 021-446-0567 I'm taking your SMSs on 31702 and 31567. What do you want to ask the Naked Scientist this morning? There are some SMSs left over from last week and the first one, someone wants to know, Chris, why is it that adults' armpits smell when they sweat but young children don't? Okay, I think there's a number of factors to this. One is that when we get bigger grow up there's more surface area there's more skin and the thing that's making you whiffy when you get sweaty are bacteria and our bodies are an absolutely seething mass of bacteria especially in the damp and dark bits like underarms between your legs and other folds of skin and those bacteria the bigger area there is for them to live on the more of them they're going to be and therefore the more smells they can produce so size is important in that context number two Adults also tend to be a bit hairy under their arms, and if you're a bit hairy under your arms, that's a, an additional place for dampness and dead skin to accumulate, so you can end up with even more bacteria because the bugs can cling to the hairs. And number three, as we get older and go through puberty, then you do tend to get sweatier, and also the composition of bugs that grow on you also changes to reflect the fact that uh, your body is changing metabolically and chemically as you get a bit older and you mature. And if you get different bugs growing on you, they make different smells. So that combination of factors mean that you tend to get whiffier as you get older or go into adulthood. But then, luckily, you don't go on an exponential rise. It tends to level off once we've gone through puberty. All right, let's go straight to John. John in Russiaville. Hi. Hi there. Um, I just have a question about 
um, increase in the amount of sound that we live. Um, either through, I don't know, improvements with biomechanics and those kinds of things, or just um, increasing the amount of um, cures for different medicines. Do you think that in maybe the next 20 or 30 years, we're going to drastically increase our lifespan, like a couple of hundred years? Good morning, John. This is an important point that you raise, and it's quite surprising to many people that human lifespan has not increased enormously owing to the impacts of modern medicine. And you might say, wow, that's a major surprise to me. But if you look at the data, then the thing that's really made a difference to how long people live is the environment that they live in. And a few hundred years ago, London was a filthy, disgusting city. It was a massive city with a huge population, but there was no clean running water, there was no sewerage system, and as a result, people tended to get all kinds of horrible infections and it wasn't a nice place to live and mm. the average person died very young and, and if you go to a, a graveyard and look at graveyards around across the UK certainly uh, you will see a huge overrepresentation of of young children so the childhood mortality rates were very high and this is because diseases are transmitting readily in the environments in which people were living people were poorly nourished they didn't have access to good quality food so if your body's under stress because it's malnourished it can't defend its very well. As soon as they clean the act up though and London becomes a cleaner place, there's access to clean water, people become better nourished and they're taking the sewage away, the average lifespan shoots up enormously. And this is way before anyone actually discovers even the cause of tuberculosis, a major scourge at the time. Didn't even know what was causing it. So they couldn't be treating something they didn't know what, what was causing a disease, but lifespan increased enormously. So modern medicine tends to make life better. It tends to make certain people live a bit longer, but it hasn't made a huge and dramatic difference yet to people. It's the world we live in that has really made that difference. Whether that will carry on into the future, I don't know. It, it would appear that the finite time that we can live is something like 100 years or so. It looks like, genetically, we're not really capable of going on much beyond 100 mm -hmm. because we just clap out, unfortunately. <laughs> and, and this is because, if you think about it, uh, when we were evolving, then if, if we lived to be the age that many of the people listening to this programme is now, mm. then we would have been considered old. You know, people who were in their thirties that they were they were seasoned senior citizens. Wow! Most people were getting married before they were even teenagers. Most people were reproducing before they were teenagers. In some cases, they were certainly uh, deciding you know basically who they were in life and. It's amazing to me that uh, people managed to, to do anything because they seem to live a relatively short time. So there was enormous selective pressure genetically on us to, to, to survive up until about the age of 30 because by then we had passed on our genes to our offspring and we were about to become a burden on society rather than a net contributor to society. Once we get into our 40s, we're pretty much done and dusted. Nowadays, we're all living way beyond that age mm. and the problem is that there's nothing to select to keep us in the population beyond that age because we've passed on our genes in our 30s. So it's much harder to select in favour of longevity 
beyond reproductive age. And there is something called the grandma effect. People say, why, why do people tend to still live a long time then if, if there isn't that selection pressure? And if you talk to people who model this kind of thing, they will tell you that, that because grandmas and, and grandparents in general make a, a big contribution to child-rearing or looking after the kids and bringing wisdom, then there is a selective pressure to try to make people live at least into grandma and granddad-type age because they can continue to contribute to the, the family unit, but it's not as strong as that early selection that helps us to live to at least 30. Mm-hmm. David, hold that thought, because I know you have um, a, a question on premature aging, and Ed, Edward in Milneton, I see your call coming to you right after this. The Naked Scientist, on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk, with Reedy Clappy. David in Kensington, thanks for holding on. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, I have a question regarding a syndrome known as uh, progeria, which is premature aging. We had a young man here in South Africa who uh, his life expectancy was not expected into into the 20s. And as a a little teenager, he looked like an old man. Have the scientists discovered anything about this? Do they know anything about this? I would welcome your comment. Hello, David. Um, This, as you say, is a premature ageing syndrome. I think this is because you don't repair DNA properly. I think there's some kind of uh, sort of failure of DNA to be properly maintained, but I don't know for sure. Um, I'd need to check it, but certainly it's very dramatic, and I've never seen a patient who has this, but I have seen pictures of um, groups of individuals and families and things who have this in them, and individuals who have this, um, by the time they are about age 10, look like they're about 10 times older than they really are, because the tissues just don't um, renew themselves properly. But I will check into this and see what the latest research is, because I don't know, I'm afraid. Okay, and uh, some SMSs coming in on this one. And uh, an SMS from Sibonelo. How does CPR, air transfusion, latch onto the lungs to revive breathing without the participation of the receiver? Okay, so when we're doing CPR, this stands for cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Chiefly what you're doing is trying to maintain a circulation of blood and also the circulation of oxygenated blood around that person's body until the heart can be restarted so it works under its own steam. So it's not just putting air into the lungs, it's also compressing the chest to make blood move. So the the chief focus actually now with CPR is to do chest compressions, jump up and down effectively with uh, your arms locked straight on the person's chest because this applies pressure onto the chest cavity and if you increase the pressure in the chest cavity you transmit that pressure into the heart and if you squeeze the heart then the blood that's in the heart is pushed out into the blood vessels and then when you take the pressure off some blood flows back into the heart from the veins and so you're effectively helping blood to move around the tissues. And when a person's heart stops, the damage that's done occurs because tissues, and particularly the brain, which is very, very oxygen-hungry, suffers a lack of oxygen. So if you can keep blood moving, even if it's slowly, then you're still delivering some oxygen to the tissue and you're taking away some of the waste that would otherwise accumulate. And this can make the difference between 
uh, life and death. And the idea is that this is used as a holding measure to keep people going until help can arrive in the form of more advanced life-saving strategies or more skilled individuals. But sometimes it is sufficient just by going through the CPR process that a person will then autonomously recover from the process that led to their heart stopping or their, their having a respiratory rest. And, and then they can recover. So it's it's not just that you're mm. breathing into the person, because when you're when you're blowing air in, you're blowing air with oxygen from you into that person's windpipe, and it's going down into the bottom of the lungs, and it then diffuses into the blood, just as, as air they would breathe in would. And then when you take the pressure off, some of the air comes whistling out again as the lungs recoil under their own elasticity, and so effectively you're just making them breathe. Edward in Milnerton. Hello, Rudy. How are you? Good. All right. I've got a question for the naked scientist uh, in connection with the uh, touch screen uh, technology. What is happening there? Yes. uh, Let's say an example of a cell phone. How does uh, the touch screen technology work? Okay. Chris? Okay. Well, most of the time, these um, devices use what's called capacitance. So the screen is conductive and it's usually got a matrix of tiny conductors on the surface of the screen or it's got a matrix of sensors that can detect the capacitance, the presence of charge on the screen. And when you touch the screen, your body uh, imparts a bit of charge to the screen surface and these sensors can detect that the presence of that charge and this tells the device where you must be touching it. And as you move your finger across the screen, it is sensing how that charge attached to your finger is moving, and it attributes that to you moving, and it therefore programs the machine to do whatever it's been told to do. So it's basically picking up electricity off of your body and using that to work out where you're touching it. Thank you very much, Edward in Milnerton. Um, Chris, I've got an SMS here, and I've often heard this as well. Tandy in Renberg is on ARVs, and she wants to know why is her tummy getting bigger uh, uh, since she started using ARVs. And I've heard other people talking about how uh, the, 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 the top of the, the, the shoulders, that, that part is almost bulging, and uh, the, 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 the stomach is also getting big as a result of ARVs. want to know what's, what's in the ingredients and why does this happen. Yes, so... One of the problems with antiretroviral therapy is that apart from usually being very good at controlling HIV, they do have some side effects. And one of those side effects is they can affect the way that fats and oils are metabolized and distributed around the body. And they can cause raised cholesterol, which can be a problem if you're at risk of heart disease, and that may need to be taken into account. But they can also cause lipodystrophy, and you can get this abnormal distribution of fat around the body. So areas where there should be fat at a certain amount, you can get too much fat, and other areas where there should be a certain amount of fat to support tissues and so on, you can lose fat from there. And this can, can leave people leaving this can leave people with, say, a slightly hollowed out appearance to their face sometimes, and then sometimes you can also get uh, a bump to your tummy and a, a bump behind your shoulder blades, as you said. And this is a recognised side effect, and it's probably because some aspect of the drug, apart from being very good at blocking the virus, also binds to or blocks the action of other signals in the body 
um, fooling fat cells into thinking they're being told to do something they're not and it causes this abnormal redistribution of fat and it is, it is quite well established that you get these lipodystrophies with some of these uh, AIDS medications. The problem is that if you don't take them of course you're going to be much more unhealthy. So it's a, a toss-up between controlling the side effects and controlling the disease. Let's go to Zendo. Zendo is 12 years old and calling us from Binoni. Hi there Zendo. Um, I'd like to ask the relationship between volts, watts and amps. Hello, Zandor. Okay, well, there is a very useful mathematical equation you can use, and that is P for power, and that's watts, equals V volts times I current and amps. So if you want to work out what power is in a circuit, so if you had a light bulb, for example, uh, what you would do is you take the voltage of the mains, let's say that's 240 volts, and you would multiply it by the current going around in the circuit. So if you uh, had a quarter of an amp going around the circuit, 240 times 0.25, that's a quarter, equals 60. So it would be 60 watts, and that would be the rating on the light bulb. Does that answer the question? <laughs> Zendo, does that answer your question, dear? Sort of, yes. So, <laughs> he says sort of. Okay, thank you very much for calling. Thank you, Zendo and Binoni. Last question here, Chris. Could you please explain dark energy and dark matter in English? That's from Pius. <laughs> no. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right. That's dark. Uh, uh, one, one, <laughs> one cynical physicist said to me that uh, when a physicist discovers something and they want to get grant money for it, then they just shove the word dark in front of the word, and that usually means they'll get a supply of funding. But basically it means something we don't understand. Dark means unknown. So they, put, they, they gave the, the badge dark to matter and dark to energy because these are phenomena that we couldn't quite explain, but we knew they must exist. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the universe around us, there's matter, in other words, material that we can see, and we, when we look at how material behaves, you can see that there's something acting on it or changing its behaviour with a lot of gravitational action, which we can't see. For instance, if you look at the way galaxies rotate and the way stars orbit in galaxies, there's something around those galaxies which is having a gravitational effect on the things in the galaxy, but we can't see it. So there's something there, some matter, which is very gravitationally active but invisible. So scientists dubbed that dark matter. And when they added the matter together with the dark matter, they found that that could still only account for about 25% of what's in the universe. We knew there must be other stuff in the universe to account for the way the universe is behaving. So 75% of the, the, the matter in the universe, or the material in the universe, we can't see or account for. So as we can't see it, we can't measure it, but we know it's there because we can see it's having some kind of effect on the way the universe is behaving, there must be some kind of energy driving the inflation of the universe because we know the universe is getting bigger. So physicists have dubbed that dark energy. And that makes up maybe 75% of the universe around us. And it's pretty awe-inspiring to think that 75% of the universe around us, we don't know what it is. Thank you very much, Chris. We look forward to chatting to you again next week.
Okay, Rudy, thanks very much. And I'll also come back to you on um, on the progeria phenomenon. Yeah. I had a quick flick um, during some, when, when we were talking about adverts earlier, I just had a quick flick through. And uh, the, the article I've found says that in the case of progeria, this is not a defective DNA process. Uh, this is something else. It's a structural problem. There oh. are other accelerated aging problems, including Werner's syndrome, which is the one I was thinking of, which is a defect of DNA repair. But I will look into this um, next week and come back to you. We look forward to it. Have a lovely weekend, Chris. Bye-bye. Thanks, Reedy. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.